Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Charlie Gross. I am the Associate Executive Presbyter for the Presbytery of Donegal. I'm hosting this podcast series titled Missional Church Conversations, Making It Real. This conversation is a series of interviews with a wide variety of leaders in the field of the missional church. These leaders are professors, pastors, elders, deacons, sisters and brothers in Christ who are experimenting with new ways of being the church in the world today. My hope is that these conversations inspire you, challenge you, change you, and push you into the world with boldness and confidence to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. My special well-known guest today is Shane Claiborne. Shane's online bio starts with this. Best-selling author, prominent Christian activist, sought-after speaker, and recovering sinner. Well, let me tell you just a bit more about this passionate Christ follower. Shane graduated from Eastern University and did graduate work at Princeton Seminary. His experience is varied. From a 10-week stint working alongside Mother Teresa in Calcutta, to a year spent serving a wealthy mega-congregation at Willow Creek Community Church outside Chicago. During the recent war in Iraq, Shane spent three weeks in Baghdad with the Iraq peace team. Shane is also a founding partner of The Simple Way, a faith community in inner-city Philadelphia that has helped to birth and connect radical faith communities around the world. Shane writes and travels extensively, speaking about peacemaking, social justice, and Jesus. Shane, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, Charlie. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I also have the Reverend Tony Sundermeyer on the line, who will be interviewing Shane. Tony is a friend who previously served in the Presbytery of Donegal. Tony is now the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He received his Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, and is currently a Doctor of Ministry candidate at Biblical Seminary in Advanced Missional Leadership. Tony, thank you also for joining me on this call today and for handling this special interview. Thanks, Charlie. Glad to do it. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, my hope is that we'll explore Shane's work today in ministry as it intersects with missional living and following Jesus Christ into the world of 2010, 2011, and beyond. If that sounds okay with you, I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thanks, Charlie. Shane, it's good to be with you. Yeah. Well, what, what no one, I guess, read in either of our bio lines is that we were college roommates and best buds, huh? <laughs> this is, it's, good to, it's good to connect in this way, but, uh, yeah, those were good days, good days. Um, well, Shane, to get started, uh, since this is a conversation about the missional church, uh, understanding uh, this turn called a missional turn toward uh, a, a, maybe a new way of thinking theologically or a recovery of what it means to be uh, the church in and for the world uh, has had sort of a move from uh, being uh, an understanding, rather, of being a provider of mission or mission programs uh, to understanding the church as a part of God's mission to reconcile the world to God and to one another. And so my first question is a very general one. Um, what do you make of the, the whole missional turn? Do you think uh, this body of work, this conversation is helpful? And uh, does it make sense in your particular context of ministry? 
Well, I, I'm I'm so excited about the missional language because I think part of what it does is it says that you're here you're you're here in this world to live for something bigger than yourself, and uh, you know much of the Christianity that I grew up uh, raised in uh, in the Bible Belt in the South was only concerned with saving uh, you know your soul and what happens after you die and had nothing to do with what happens before you die. And I, um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I think that we—it doesn't have to be one or the other. But the fact is that we're left here, and uh, the the language that Jesus uses all the time about the kingdom of God wasn't just something that He's preparing us for after we die, but something that we're to bring on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, in heaven. And so I think that mission. Uh, and the missional language of that uh, is an incredible thing, you know. And and there's there's certainly there's nothing new about that. I th- I think right. that um, it, it's maybe even just a correction to where we've become so uh, skewed in our understanding of what it means to be Christian. Uh, but you know, I, I love how Frederick Beekner says that uh, w- when we take our deepest passions and connect them to the world's greatest needs. Uh, th- that's, I think, what it means to be missional. And, and, and so you can do that as a doctor, you can do it as a school teacher, you can do it as a lawyer, as a pastor, uh, but, it, but it does mean that, um, that to be Christian uh, means connecting our faith in the God of heaven with what's happening uh, here on earth. You know, one of the, the things that you've been a part of um, is the, the new monastic movement, uh, Christ followers who are intentionally practicing faith and life together. I've often heard you say uh, doing that in places that have been abandoned uh, by empire, um, particularly urban centers. And, and I was thinking about the movement uh, as a whole. Would, would you see that as an expression of the missional turn, as maybe um, a post-institutional expression of that turn? Yeah, well, here's here's the thing that's interesting. When we started the simple way, you know, uh, t- ten years ago, almost fifteen years ago, we we didn't have language for everything that we were doing, um, and, and and you know, if if even today, if I said to a lot of my friends or neighbors, you know, we're new monastics, I think that be you know they might be like, I know you're kind of nasty, but what <laughs> you know, like, but but um, what. The the more I look at church history, the more that I've begun to see that, you know, over and over, uh, we forget who we are and what it means to be the church uh, in the world we live in. And, and we get infected with um, the empire, you know, with the market, with the militarism. We forget who we are. And so there are movements of folks that... Um, go to the desert, they go to the margins, and they begin to rethink what it means to be the church. And uh, I, I, I love St. Francis and Clare, you know, in Assisi in the 13th century. And w- one of the things that, that Francis heard from God was this whisper to repair the, the ruins of the church. Uh, and, and I think that's the same whisper that many of us hear today, is, is that the church is... Uh, um, kind of on life support, it's you know it's got all kinds of struggles, but there's a there's an incredible invitation to to try to be a part of restoring that. Um, and, and so what what I love about the the monastic renewals is that they weren't just at odds with the church, but they were were trying to be the change that they wanted to see in the church. Uh, and, and so I uh, I think that's very much the spirit of what we're doing. We're not 
we're not anti-church. We're not even parachurch. We're pro-church, and um, we're we're trying to um, be allow our communities and our lives to be the sort of critique uh, of the church uh, by, by trying to live a Christianity that's more fascinating than maybe what we grew up with. What would you then say the new monastic movement can can teach? Uh, folks like me who are part of or leading part of a sort of an institutional body, an established church, a denominational church, uh, what do you think you could, what would you offer then um, uh, in terms of what you've experienced in this pursuit of renewal, hearing the whisper, um, where so oftentimes we're bombarded with all these institutional questions and even pursuing, uh, in some ways, and I would say negatively, institutional survival. What, what do you think you could teach folks like me or encourage uh, in folks like me uh, by the things you've experienced in being very intentional uh, in, in the type of church you are trying to participate in? Here, here's what I, I see as I, I sort of look at the last few decades of, of church history here in the U.S. is that we, I mean, we, we are in the middle of um, a, an absolute crisis of spiritual formation because what we became obsessed with in the past uh, few decades is making believers but not making disciples, you know, and, and it's very interesting that Jesus sends the, the, the early apostles out into the world, not to make believers, but to make disciples. And because our language has been about making believers, you know, are you a believer? Is your mom a believer? And, and so believer, like, it, it just, it's, it's all in our language, but it's also in our theology. So what we become obsessed with is, is that, that people, um, believe a certain set of doctrines um, as if Christianity is just a set of ideas that you read on paper. I think the things that we are really important, and I think there is all this sloppy theology out there that we need to combat with theology, um, but I also cannot, I cannot miss that in Jesus we don't just see any invitation, um, you know, to, 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 to sign at the dotted line at the, the the end of, you know, some doctrinal statement, but it's an invitation to join a movement that is embodying God's love and goodness in the world. And, and that's what it means to be Christians, what it means to be the body of Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and so I, I think because we've lost that, um, that, that sense of, of uh, missional or, or embodiment, incarnational, you know, living of our faith, um, doctrines are hard things to love, and, and so it, it's not uh, that surprising that people have been leaving the church. Um, and it, it's also very interesting because in our church growth strategies, um, you know, in our infatuation with the megachurch, we've, we, we've really grown these huge congregations of believers, but what, what, what they're seeing um, is that you can worship Jesus without following him, you know, and, and it's one of the coolest things that uh, has come out of, of Willow Creek recently in Chicago was a study called Reveal, 
where basically they, they, they surveyed the congregation and they, and they asked that question. They said, are we making believers or disciples? Are people coming in and are they reorienting their lives around um, the kingdom of God and Jesus and the mission of the church in the world? Or are they just believing in the bodily resurrection and some of those things, which are, are absolutely important, but... but um, you know, if we really believe in the resurrection, it affects the way that we live. And and so, um, so so what they found was was that we have a Christianity that at Willow Creek, uh, the, the words of one of the leaders there said, our Christianity is a mile long and an inch deep. So I think that's that's the sort of thing that we want to see change. We want to see uh, a Christianity that still like unashamedly believes in the bodily res- resurrection and the power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but also goes, and, and even as we believe that, that affects the way that we live because we become people of grace. You know, we become people that care about reconciliation and justice and peace because we're trying to follow the one who showed us what love looks like with skin on. Yeah. Well, just... Stemming from that response, and thank you for that. Uh, let me ask you more of a sort of a feet on the the pavement kind of kind of question. Where do you see this happening in your neighborhood? This uh, ferment that you just offered us. Uh, what's exciting you in terms of people entering and receiving the kingdom of God, or being formed in the pattern and way of Jesus, uh, in and through the simple way, or in um, Kensington, uh, in that in that larger neighborhood? What's really caught your attention and imagination? Uh, like something that God's doing in terms of what you just spoke about, uh, and maybe a, a, a real life example. Well, it's it's really funny because sometimes uh, I think, especially more so maybe ten years ago or something. But you know, every once in a while, folks will ask, like, um, you know, do you see folks coming to the faith or you know making commitments to Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, we do. But the funny thing is, like, the way that we do evangelism is by trying to live you know, missionally in our neighborhood. So the kids totally get it. They grow up, you know, one of them, their parents said, what are those people, you know, doing at, at the end of the block? And they're like, oh, they're, they're Christians. They love God and they love people. So they're like, they bring homeless people in when they, when they're in need, they, they, um, you know, help kids with homework and stuff like that. It's just, and, you know, so they, I, I think they grow up seeing that, not just from us, but I think from, from other, there's other great, great folks in my neighborhood that integrate their faith too. Uh, but, but one of the, the things, you know, that St. Francis, uh, he had the old line, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. But I think sometimes we use that as an excuse that we don't need words. So we, I mean, we, we do it with words and without. And one of the coolest things we got, we, we got going on Tony in, in Philly right now is um, a mentoring and discipleship program for young men. Uh, in the neighborhood that was started by folks in the neighborhood uh, that, that now we, we just support and do everything we can to, to join. And uh, it's called Timoteo, uh, which is, you know, Spanish for Timothy. And it's about uh, coming alongside a young man in the language of our, a lot of the kids in my neighborhood is football. Uh, so <laughs> it's a flag football league um, that mentors young men that uh, many of whom are really, really at risk for, you know, drugs and stuff. Uh, and, 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 um, 
So there's 150 kids now that are being mentored in Timoteo. And here's the cool thing. I think one of the things that's so neat about it is that each of the football teams is sponsored by a local congregation. So there's, you know, a dozen different teams and a dozen different congregations working together that would actually never really uh, get together to talk theology or politics, you know. Do they pray for their teams to win on Sunday morning? That's right, yeah. That's, and, but they can agree on a mission, you know. So it yeah. is the mission that unites the church uh, in, in, in taking care of young men. And, and the cool thing is, like, that, that's, that's been kind of our ecclesiology all along, is to, like, not move in and try to, to be a church planter, but to be a church renewer, you know. And, and, like, so we start missional Christian communities, and then we join the local congregation. So, you know, uh, on, on Sunday here, I was in Catholic Mass on, on Sunday morning, and then I got a little Pentecostal at night, you know. And, and, and so we, we just try to join wherever we see God at work. So that that's one of the cool things happening in, in our neighborhood, and then one of the other things, Tony, that y- y- we we get um, new questions. I think that arise uh, out of the mission. So one of the biggest issues in Philly right now has been gun violence. You know, and we we've, we've um, uh, seen nearly one homicide every 48 hours. So almost every two days, a kid's killing another kid, and. So we can do all of this mentoring and these, you know, we do alternative to violence projects, trying to teach, you know, restorative justice and conflict resolution. But then there also comes a point where you start to say, where are the kids getting the guns? You know, and Dr. King said, Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you also start to say, uh, maybe the whole road to Jericho needs to be rethought, you know? <laughs> and so yeah. and literally in February, we, uh, we held a kid that was shot on my block uh, and, and as he bled and, and the next morning he died. And so we, we are continuing to come alongside young men through, through the, you know, programs like Timoteo, but we also are doing something about the gun violence too, in, in the sense of going, there's a few notorious gun shops in Philly that are irresponsibly selling guns that land themselves on the street. And so we've started prayer vigils outside of some of those with a, a group that's now known as Heeding God's Call. And what's cool about this is that it's Christians from a lot of different traditions. I mean, the historic black church, uh, the Latino co- coalition, Hispanic clergy, and then there's like uh, Catholics and Protestants all together. And we've, we've started these vigils, and we had one of the most powerful ones on Good Friday uh, this past uh, Easter. On Good Friday, we gathered outside of the gun shop, and we remembered the suffering of Jesus and we all, we connected that suffering to the to the suffering of our streets from gun violence, and so it was so powerful to hear mothers um, talk, you know, sharing about seeing their kids killed, and then um, then hearing some good preaching about how in the end we believe in resurrection, uh, and, and and that's the promise of, of Jesus. Uh, but there was something that happens when we connect the cross to the suffering of our world. And this one woman, she came up to me, um, her kid had had been killed, and she said, you know what's so powerful about the service we had today is I realized that God understands what I feel because God watched his son die. So God must know what it feels like to be me. 
and how, I mean, how powerful, you know, is, is that? So that that's the kind of stuff that we're up to, you know, and uh, um, w- whether it's you know helping a kid with homework or talking about you know violence, but but then also trying to to really ask the question of what would the kingdom of God look like if it came in North Philadelphia? Yeah. Uh, Heeding God's Call is a great organization. Our church has recently uh, begun conversations in this past year with them, uh, seeing ways that we can partner. And I also believe they're doing some work in the city of Allentown, uh, which is where we're practicing faith and life here. And and those who are listening who are interested in that, I encourage you to look them up online, Heeding God's Call. They're doing great work, uh, not just in in the city of Philadelphia, but are are spreading out in other regions and areas, let me let me ask you, Shane, on that scene. Yeah, you know, one of the cool things, Tony, yeah, about that that there was a group. Uh, as a, you know, I'm an East Tennessee kid, so I just came back from Tennessee where I did a little fishing. And one of the great groups that's been working with some of these groups in the city is uh, called Hunters Against Gun Violence. Um, mm. <laughs> you know? wow. So it's a cool it's cool to see like everybody like kind of uniting as who they are, you know, and yeah. something that we can agree on, like saying, hey, as Christians, we want to be known for life and for, right. you know, trying to interrupt whatever's killing people. Yeah. Shane, say something about the, the relational tithe, because I think this connects to it. And I, the reason I bring it up, and I, and I have another question um, in terms of the situation churches, institutional churches, denominational churches, established evangelical congregations, are facing, but but one of the things that you really push in your community is the relational tithe, and I, and I participated with that, uh, I guess, about a year ago with the garden project that you uh, that you guys initiated in your neighborhood. But but say something about that, because a lot of churches like like mine have understood mission as writing checks and paying folks like you. I mean, to be frank, to do mission for us. Um, but but talk a little bit about. You're trying to steer away as a community um, with that language and that understanding of relational tithing. Yeah, the the idea of the relational tithe was it came uh, a bunch of years ago. We had a theologian that studied the tithe, you know, the the tithes and offerings in the church and and in the Hebrew scripture and how one of the the things that happened with that was the Jubilee celebrations, you know, and this idea of alternative economics within the community of God. And then, of course, in the early church, it's just, uh, you know, so... Uh, clear that it says that all of the apostles were together, they shared everything that they had, no one claimed any of their stuff was their own. It says the offerings were put at the apostles' feet and they were distributed to folks as they had need, you know. So it, it, this uh, the paper that, that Ray Mayhew, the theologian, wrote was called Embezzlement, the Sin of the Contemporary Church. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but one of the things that he sort of points out is that we have um, embezzled some of that money that is meant for this missional work among the poor and the hurting. And, and if you if you look at, at the the use of the tithes and offerings, um, studies like the empty tomb and other you know uh, church stewardship things, they show that like over ninety five percent, sometimes even higher than that, ninety five percent of the offerings are staying internally to build buildings and pay staff mostly, you know, and whereas in the early church, I mean, it was just the opposite. I mean, the, the, the offerings were, were to, to, to meet needs. And I think what we began to realize too, is that this is a sickness 
within the institutional church. It's something that is has infected us, you know, and um, and, and I think what's in, it's indicative of is we've lost some of that relationship with p- folks that are suffering. Because I really believe that the greatest tragedy in the church is not that rich folks don't care about poor folks, but that rich folks don't know poor folks. You know, because when you know folks, I mean, their their pain keeps you up at night. You know, like if you know someone who's cold then it causes us to try to do something about that as, you know, people that just have compassion in our hearts. And so, um, so what we did was we, we, we created this common fund of money where we tithe. We, it's groups of Christians all over the world right now that we give 10% of our incomes into a common fund. And a hundred percent of that is redistributed um, and here's the thing that's so important is that it's redistributed through friendships and relationships. So uh, we don't give to any organizations. We don't give the needs that we read about in newsletters. Uh, it causes us to be in relationship with folks that are hurting because that's the only way you can present a need. Uh, so we say there's no more than one degree of separation from the giver and the receiver. So, uh, and, and that's how we meet major needs in our neighborhood. You know, when I have a neighbor whose house catches on fire, I can bring a $10,000 need, uh, need up before this little community of Christians, and, uh, and, and we, can, we can help do something about it. Uh, so I, I think some of those things, like, like the relational tie, the things that we've tried to create, um, not even always as a critique of the church, but as like mechanisms of going, hey, the early church, like, and uh, the, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's these things like jubilee, there's, there's systemic, there's, there's ways that we need to, to reorient our economics so that we can uh, be instruments of, of God's uh, compassion and generosity in the world. That, that uh, segues nicely to, to my next question, because uh, my assumption is that the majority of people listening, as I sort of referenced before, uh, to this podcast will be people that are uh, part of established churches, part of institutional churches, denominational uh, sort of contexts. Um, and, and we face two major issues uh, in, in the life of the church and leads us to, and, and oftentimes tempt us toward our own institutional survival, which I think is part of the reason why 95% of uh, 95 cents of every dollar that's given to the church stays uh, because we've become more concerned with our institutional survival. I think it affects us in two fronts. One is just the pervasive membership decline that we've seen, uh, not just in mainline Protestant churches, but just Christianity in general when it comes to that measuring tool uh, uh, of how many members does one have uh, at a church. Uh, in the last 26 years, the, my church, uh, to use an example, is has seen a 35% decline in membership, which means that by 2083 we'll be down to zero, and hopefully I'll be retired by then. But um, but <laughs> we see we see a membership decline, and that's sort of the internal struggle we face. But then there's that the external struggle that that goes against that institutional survival, and that's the recession that we're in. And um, and, and frankly, to put it in a very base way, you know, money's tight with churches. And so we have an internal and external um, uh, challenge that we face, this membership decline, uh, the recession, that, that both of these affect uh, how we function or how we 
think we need to function in the life of the world. I'm wondering, as leaders maybe connecting with, with these two challenges, uh, if you were to offer some good news, uh, and, and I think the church needs good news just like the world needs good news, uh, but if you're going to offer some good news, what would you want to say by way of encouragement or by way of challenge as we are <coughs> facing these two uh, two issues? Well, I, I think that, that one of the things that happens when we have crises or, or like, you know, an economic recession is that we're forced to have imagination. And, uh, I mean, some of the my neighbors are, are, are some of the most resourceful people that I've ever met in my life, some of the most creative, because they, they've had to be imaginative in order to survive. And I think for a lot of years the church hasn't had – to survive. And so it's really become quite starved for imagination. Um, and, uh, that's why no one wants a persecution, you know, but like, I think that, that, that the most, uh, beautiful and lively and, and, and imaginative parts of the church are often like in some of the toughest places in the world. Um, and, and so right now, I, th- I think that, that this is, a, it is an incredible opportunity for us to rethink ourselves it's, it's, economically. We have a, a great opportunity right now. Uh, maybe even we'll be forced to have some of that, you know. But, I mean, here's, here's the, the, the bad news is, is, uh, is what you said. I mean, there's a huge decline. There's a decline in giving to uh, the, the institutional church. In fact, there's a study I just read. It's in the Religious News Service right now that um, – said the average uh, church-going Christian is given uh, $20 less per person uh, annually. Um, and yet, like, so it's funny because some of the uh, more aggressive atheists started going, see, like, so, you know, Christianity, it's dying. And, and yet, like, what's really interesting is then there was another study that showed the average Christian, and, and even uh, in the larger society, too, generosity is higher than ever. Like, um, so just as Christians are giving $20 less to the church, they're giving $40 more uh, annually uh, per person just in, in, in the world at large. And so, like, generosity is, is, is going up just as church giving is going down. And I think what that shows is that the world doesn't trust, trust the church with its money. Like, young Christians don't trust the church with their money because they want something meaningful to happen in this world. You know, they want to see, like, kids that are dying of malaria have mosquito nets, which cost $3. They want to see people not die because they uh, don't have access to clean water, you know? Uh, So when the church is putting, like, a heater in the baptismal because it's uncomfortable to get into cold water when you get baptized. Like, <laughs> yeah, people start giving other places, you know, as, as they should. So I think what, what's exciting though, is it's an opportunity for us to like, to, 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 to recognize we can do better, you know, and, and, and this generation like is reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And so they're realizing that this world is really, really fragile, and we've got to rethink the way that we live. We've got to rethink our economics and rethink our, our what, what it means to be church in light of the brokenness of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I mean, one of the, the cool projects that one of the missional communities in Philly's got going uh, that's connected to some of the other church, church congregations is a, a bio diesel station where they take waste vegetable oil 
from around the city of Philadelphia and they make biodiesel out of it, you know? And so we've had like CNN and MTV and some of these different groups go, Oh, we want to see that. And, and, but then it becomes a part of our witness because we can go, yeah, we're Christians. So we think God cares about how we live in this world. So we're, and we actually have a theology of waste, you know, that stuff that's thrown out can be resurrection, re- resurrected, you know? And so I, I think it's, it is very much a part of our witness and, and if we want to be relevant to the world that we live in, um, I, I think we don't have to turn too far. Like the, 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 the Amish are pretty in the Mennonite tradition, I think is, is poised for a renewal right now in the middle of a recession, you know, like, uh, I think the seeming irrelevancy of the Amish has more and more to teach us about like what it means to be relevant Christians today, you know, like start growing our own food, start like living closer to the, to the land. And, 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 and like, that's a part of, there's a theology there. There's an, a sense of like, God is forming us into a people that um, are suspicious of, of some of the economic and power structures of the world around us. So we live in peculiar ways. Yeah. You know, you talked earlier about formation and um and Shane, thanks for your time again and this will be the sort of the last uh, point of reflection I'll, I'll ask of you, but um talked about spiritual formation a little bit earlier about how we're making Christians not so much what we believe but but making disciples and uh one of the conversations we're having in our in our church is how how do you form disciples who have uh who have not had that much expected of them? Uh, who have been comfortable in Christendom, who graduate from our programs but leave uh, no different than if they came in. And uh, and so that's a, a deep passion of mine. And I know there's something that you're very excited about uh, in terms of spiritual formation, and certainly I think we both agree that in worship we meet the primary um, – we, we we enter the primary platform of our formation because what we worship is what we become. Uh, so we worship a God who is indifferent toward the the the, the pain of the world, then we're we're going to be indifferent toward the pain of the world. But but you're excited about a project, a liturgy project that you worked on that I think has a lot of um, connectivity in terms of uh, something that your community, which is non-institutional. Uh, can can resource an institutional community, and at the same time, we're mutually working on making disciples of Jesus. Can you say just a little bit about uh, this liturgy project called Common Prayer? Yeah, well, there's there's been a bunch of of us working on uh, on this project called Common Prayer, and uh, and, and it's it's a it's a book that's coming out in Advent, but and it's also on on the web, CommonPrayer.net. Uh, but but really, it, it was it's been about five years in the works, and what we began to do was to try to go, okay, like how do we take the liturgy of the church and just uh, kind of make it dance a little bit for for folks today that might be new to liturgy, and and you know not not. Um, and 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 sort of build on this this tradition of you know thousands of years of 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 prayers and songs and readings and so what we did was our goal was to as I was just saying you know Carl Bart's line was to read the Bible in one hand the newspaper in the other and so we try to um, I mean I think this is what it, a part of what formation and liturgy are about are reorienting our lives around a different story than than the dominant 
culture and you know the the imperial story and all that so he's going like let's let's rethink our heroes um you know um and let's rethink like what 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 it means to to why what it means to really be alive today and 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 so we have like morning prayers for every morning uh and they begin by looking at this day in history. So we remember, you know, this was the day that Mandela was released from prison. This was the day that Oscar Romero was killed in El Salvador. This is the day uh, that Rosa Parks stayed on that bus in Montgomery, you know, and and, and so we, we kind of remember dates that are really, really significant for God's movement uh, and the coming of the kingdom on earth. Um, and then we have, you know, prayers and, 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 uh, and the lectionary readings and everything. And then we have songs from 50, uh, 50 different songs from different traditions, old hymns and African spirituals and freedom songs, Taize, you know, chants. And so there's all, all this together. And, and our, our, our goal was really as Jesus prayed that we would be one as God is one. And so with, you know, nearly 40,000 Christian denominations, like we're trying to, to mine the, the history uh, and pull out some of the best um, things that we can learn from the different traditions, you know, whether it's Pentecostal or Orthodox or Presbyterian or Methodist. And, and so we highlight some of the people who have been um, incredible exemplary models of Christianity lived out, you know, uh, and so there's a hundred of those that we recognize through the year. And then every month we have a Christian practice that we try to celebrate. So sort of a, a spiritual discipline or a practice like simplicity or economic sharing, um, or like creation care, um, or peacemaking and Matthew 18, you know, sort of confession of things that we've done wrong. So there's, there's, uh, uh, all that and, and uh, it's like a big old 500 page book uh, that'll come out and, and our, our hope is that it'll help us greet the days together sing songs and pray prayers that that can unite us uh, in mission in this world so to, to realize that that prayer and action don't have to be separated from each other in fact they have to go together uh, and, and too often we pray to God and we say God you know why don't you do something about this problem and and if we listen real closely we can hear god sort of say back to us i did do something i made you uh you know and i think that's really at, at, at the, the deepest level that's what prayer is about is not just convincing god to be you know to do what we want god to do but to convince ourselves to do what we know that god wants us to do shane hey thanks for your time today i'm also very thankful on a personal level for uh, your witness in Kensington, uh, being a product of Philadelphia, my father growing up in the neighborhood you live in, um, it's a great joy to know uh, that uh, all the things that God is doing in, in that uh, in that neighborhood and and through your ministry both in this country and around the world, I'm very thankful. And it is cool to uh, to connect post college uh, in times like these. So thanks a lot, Shane. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's great to talk. And uh, I I gave you the dinner invite. We'll do that soon enough, man. Uh, This this is great conversation. Thanks, Shane. Mm. Charlie? Hey, man, this is phenomenal. This is great, great uh, conversation. So Tony and Shane, thank you very much for your your outstanding ministries. This is going to challenge folks. And I guess I encourage people to digest this podcast and then talk about it in their in their groups and in their sessions or whatever in their small groups or communities because it's 
it is relational. And for, for more information, you could go to thesimpleway.org to hear more about Shane. You could go to, he referenced uh, commonprayer.net, and I heard uh, heedinggodscall.org in all that. So, so, gentlemen, thanks so much for your ministries, your time today, and your love and passion for Jesus Christ. You've, you have challenged us and given us a great new, some new ways of thinking and living. Uh, may God richly, richly bless you and yours. Um, have a great day. Thanks, Charlie.